The Dauntless Gambit by Eric Flowers. Narrated by Chris Lynch. Episode 32. Now is the time to cooperate. In. Hold. Out. Hold. Hold. Repeat. Julian completed another breathing cycle. He was nearing 10,000 of them now. He had lost exact count somewhere past 8,000. This meant he had been in the cell for almost a day and a half. Julian's body ached from the stun and the subsequent full-body drop to his office's floor. Rennick and his goons had not seemed concerned with his well-being when transporting him here either, wherever here was. Julian assumed it was wherever Rennick's new division operated. He was still on Kestris at least. That was good. Clark should have grown concerned after a day of Julian's absence. Thankfully, due to Rennick's outburst, the Naval Special Investigation Division would be the first place Clark would look. Julian was still alive, although the cell Rennick had arranged for him to endure this imprisonment was doing its best to make him question just what alive meant. In, hold, out, hold, hold, repeat. The cell was not a cell in the typical understanding. There were no bars, no energy fields, no flimsy cot with a tissue-thin mattress, and no rusted metal sinks bolted to crumbling brick walls. In fact, there was nothing in the cell at all, or at least that was what it was designed to make you think, as it slowly broke down the captive's mental stability. This was not a place where one was put because a captor wanted to forget about them. No, this was a place where one was put when a captor wanted to break their prisoner down because they intended to return once the room had done its job. In, hold, out, hold, hold, repeat. Every surface was white. The walls, the ceiling, the floor, the rectangular bench Julian presumed he was sitting on because he could feel the corner his knees were bent over. Everything in the cell was made from the same material, a photonic polymer that, when energized, emitted a uniform white light that removed all shadows, all sense of depth, any notion of space and presence. The lighting was set to oscillate at a frequency that made everything appear to buzz, the luminosity changing so subtly and so rapidly that the conscious mind could barely notice. But it wasn't meant for the conscious mind. In, hold, out, hold, hold, repeat. It was neurologically impossible to relax. If he tried to close his eyes or block the light with his arm, that's when the cell's other sensory deprivation property became even more maddening. The room was perfectly insulated, completely void of white noise or outside sounds. But it could not block the noises Julian made inside the cell, which were exacerbated by the unnatural silence. Every sound scraped across his ears. The sound of his own breathing. The sound of his pulse. The sound of the fibers of his clothes rubbing together interrupted every thought. In. Hold. Out, hold, hold, repeat. Julian was familiar with this method of psychologically breaking a captive. Torture, really. It was one of the most effective and agonizing ways to break a person's will without causing physical harm. Extreme isolation and sensory deprivation was something all agents were trained to endure. Rennick would know this, although the idea that he would have put Julian here simply to make him suffer was not out of the realm of possibilities. Either way, Julian knew that the cell's goal was to get him to lose his sense of identity, his connection to the real world as his mind replaced it with an imagined world in a desperate attempt to make sense of the featureless white void.
in, hold, out, hold, hold, repeat. Julian grinned. Yes, he could see how Rennick would believe that the white, silent torture was something no one could endure for long. The man was incapable of reflection. To Rennick, being alone with oneself must seem like torture. His mind would have been bent on nothing but figuring out how to escape, no matter how futile. Julian knew that there was no way to free himself, so he had not bothered fantasizing about escaping into the exterior world, and instead retreated into an interior one. In. Hold. Out. Hold. Hold. Repeat. The mental environment Julian replaced the cell with was a musty, dimly lit library, the inky night sky and its hundreds of pinprick stars visible at the arching window. The cavernous room was filled with bookshelves, carved wood that reached to the ceiling, row after row of leather-bound volumes lined up with their uneven spines, a square wave pattern that jutted in and out, up and down. Julian had begun arranging the books not by author and not by topic, but by publishing date. The oldest of the books starting on the far left of the top shelf of an empty bookcase he had summoned into being. When he had first entered the cell, the bookshelves had been empty. He had started with the oldest book he owned, a handwritten tome made of thin strips of wood bound together with primitive silk. Carbon dating had put its publishing, if you could call it publishing, at nearly 4,000 years old. Of course, outside of this imagined library, the book was in a hard vacuum display case, having never been touched by Julian's hands. It was, quite literally, irreplaceable. But here in the imagined library, well, here he could allow himself to imagine what it felt like. The grain against his fingers, the smell it must have, the sound it must make when cracked open. In. Hold. Out. Hold. Hold. Repeat. Each movement he imagined in real time, if sorting through the cart of uncategorized books looking for the next newest volume took ten minutes, he would imagine himself sorting through them for, what he hoped was, ten minutes. Each breathing cycle took approximately eight seconds. It wasn't a perfect clock, but precision was a worry far below his current set of concerns. So Julian breathed and sorted. Climbing the ladder, which took four cycles, about thirty seconds, Climbing back down, about three cycles. Row after row of the shelves grew as Julian sorted the stacks on the carts below. Some volumes required a little thinking. Was this published 200 years ago or 205? These were the most enjoyable. It meant he could take a few extra minutes to piece together what he knew about the author, how it would have related to the other volumes in the same time period, and if he got it wrong, that meant he could burn a few more breathing cycles climbing back up the ladder. In, hold, out, hold, hold, repeat. Julian snuck a sigh between breaths. No, Rennick would not be able to break him. Not with this method, anyway. Julian would collapse from exhaustion or thirst before the cell penetrated the walls of his own mental refuge. But Rennick would not let him reach that state. He wanted something out of Julian, Samantha's location. And when he assumed Julian's mind had been softened enough he would be back. Rennick may be able to far more invasive methods to eventually extract Julian's knowledge about the duplicated terminus key and what he had done with Eddie Renner's data taken off Sonali, but as to what Agent Mori was up to, that was kept, as Director Clark had ordered, well compartmentalized. Samantha was safe, which was more than Julian could say about himself. In. Hold. 
Out. The lights in the cell dimmed as the brilliant polymer surfaces de-energized. Julian opened his eyes. The floor, bench, and walls all faded to the matte white of the polymer's natural state. Only the ceiling remained lit. Depth returned to Julian's sight. Corners, angles, distances. Without the brilliant uniform lighting, everything looked gray as his eyes adjusted. He could see the outline of the door across from him, a thin line that broke up the otherwise featureless surface, allowing his senses to soak in the different visual and audio cues they could find. Even the sound deadening appeared to be disabled. Julian finished his breathing cycle, resting his hands calmly in his lap and closed his eyes one more time. It appeared that the softening of his mind and organizing of his books was over. He placed the final book, a series of plays, on the shelf and froze the mental refuge as it was for the next time he would need it. Again, Julian opened his eyes. The door to the cell shifted backward an inch and slid open into the wall. The hall outside was dark to his light-bleached retinas, and he could hear a murmur of voices, at least three. Shapes of bodies materialized in the darkness. The figures were smaller than Rennick, and none of them had his imposing stature. He could see two, one taller and one shorter, but the third was out of view. Julian's curiosity overtook his worry. It was hard to imagine Rennick allowing anyone to enter before he had a chance to question or torture Julian himself. It was not Director Clark. If he were to be having a conversation just outside of earshot, it would certainly not have been of the hushed and restrained variety. Then who? The image of Samantha hurling a guard through the door and bounding in, carambit in hand, to free him played briefly in his mind. He smiled. It couldn't be her. She definitely would not be having a hushed conversation. Thank you. Yes, please, one of the voices said. Someone else, one of Rennick's subordinates judging by the unadorned uniform, brought in two chairs and placed them near the center of the room, facing Julian on the bench. The operative, that was what Rennick called his people, left without a word, and two Navy personnel stepped through the door, both wearing the standard white Imperium Navy uniform with all the proper adornment and insignia. One was medium height with pale brown hair pulled into a bun. The other, much shorter with glossy black hair chopped across the eyebrows. Neither wore any visible weapons, and both had the OS-9 pin on their lapel. Navy intelligence? Julian felt a flutter of amusement. This was a twist he had not been expecting. He sat up straight, feet flat on the floor. The two women walked to the center of the room and seated themselves, each giving the cell's unusual appearance a glance before speaking. Julian Siddig, we are with OS-9. I am Lieutenant Esme Yadov, Principal Fleet Security Specialist. This is Lieutenant Ken Miradesi, Principal Fleet Security Analyst. We are here under orders from Major William Drake regarding an ongoing investigation regarding the group known as the Red Kestrels and the events on Starview Station. The Major authorized this room to be sealed. All monitoring devices have been deactivated. We are alone. Lieutenant Yadov looked to her partner for a moment before continuing. Agent Siddig. We know that you are an intelligence veteran and understand the procedure. Your organization, 5E, and OS-9 have a long history of working together, so we're not going to treat you like a flipped asset or a hostel bagged on some fringe street corner. We can get straight into the conversation and treat each other as peers if you wish to cooperate. Julian smiled, nodding to each of the lieutenants. Ah, yes. I have much respect for OS-9. I was not aware you were working so closely with Commander Tao. Though I am happy to see you, and not him, sitting there, Julian said, glancing up to the uniformly lit ceiling. Yadov looked to Meridesi, 
then back to Julian. Oh, can you elaborate? Yes, I can. Julian pointed to the burnt stun marks on his shirt. See, I am not here legally. I have not been charged or accused of any crime, nor have I been given the opportunity to contact legal counsel. According to the Imperium legal system regarding military organizations detaining civilians, the Navy does not have the right to detain me unless I am an active combatant or dire threat to Imperium security, of which I am neither. However, in the event I were, I would be turned over to Kestris law enforcement, not the Navy. Julian let his hands fall back into his lap. You can understand why I would be wary of Rennick's return. Yadov turned to Meridesi. The silent lieutenant nodded once. Yadov exhaled audibly through her nose, lips scrunched to the side as if she seemed to be evaluating the predicament Rennick had placed them in. That answered Julian's first question about these two. They weren't aligned with Rennick. It also answered his second question. They weren't field agents. Violent arrests and operational compromises were not part of their day-to-day -day desk jobs. If they had been, they would have known that this sort of off-the-record business was standard 5e procedure, not that the agency would have admitted to it. Yadav regained her flat composure and continued. Yes, well, boundaries have been blurred due to the Starview incident and the defense minister's insistence on justice. Commander Tao acted proactively. Yadov tilted her head. Even though you have not been charged, do you understand the commander's interest in you? Julian chuckled. Oh, yes. But the commander has shared nothing with me regarding the circumstances of my detainment. However, it is not hard to guess at his motivations. I am Agent Mori's controller, or was, and Rennick and her were close. I can understand how he would react so proactively. I presume that is why you are here as well. Yadov's eyebrow lowered. Interesting. So Rennick had used his personal history with Samantha in whatever story he had fabricated for OS-9. A bold and short-sighted move, exactly as one would expect from someone as arrogant as Rennick. He must assume it would add an element of authenticity to his tale, when instead it likely only made him appear biased. Julian shifted his eyes to the other officer, Meridesi. She was staring straight at him, her mouth pulled slightly to the side, obviously deep in concentration. This mouth twitch was likely a habit she did not realize she had. Add that to her eyes flitting back and forth rapidly, and it was the look of someone quickly working through a problem, like an algorithm working over permutations of data and discarding the bits that didn't fit and looping back over the ones that did. Yadov may be the one talking, but it was Meridesi who was validating his responses. If Meridesi's goal was to appear subtle, it was not working. No matter. Fooling a human lie detector was simple enough. Julian merely had to tell no lies, and as his 5e interrogation training had taught him, the gulf between truth and fact was vast. Yadov patted the top of her legs. Okay, Agent Siddig, if the commander has not explained your detainment, what is your assumption of why you are here then? Julian grinned and looked to his feet, glad to be able to speak with unfiltered truth when answering this particular question. Oh, I am quite certain this is a reaction to my former partner's sudden Section 42. He believes I have something to do with it. See, he has a special interest in Agent Mori. I will make a leap in logic here and presume he would like you to believe I am a Kestrel sympathizer. Julian looked up and smiled softly. And I presume he is also linking her, and by association me, to your Kestrel problem regarding the Dauntless's hijacking and how the Terminus may have been involved. Information that you presume is contained only to OS-9's knowledge. 
I can assure you, neither myself nor Agent Mori have anything to do with that. Julian watched for a reaction. Yadoff and Meridesi looked to each other, subtle head movements conveying silent conversation. Meridesi shook her head. Yadov grimaced. She turned her attention back to Julian. I am not aware of any problems on the terminus, and if there were, we are more than capable of handling them, Yadov said. It was not a convincing denial. It did not need to be. After all, they were the ones asking the questions here, not Julian. The more he could do to disrupt and pollute whatever story Rennick had fed them, the better. Of course, Julian was a co-conspirator, just not in the conspiracy they were asking about. So long as they kept their focus away from Director Clark, he had no need to deceive them on any particular fact. Julian shrugged, allowing himself a sad grin. Perhaps I am mistaken then, and if that is so, may I ask what you and Lieutenant Meridesi are investigating? Yadov's expression hardened. Commander Tao has an interest in Agent Mori's whereabouts, and during an exchange of information between the Naval Special Investigation Division and OS-9, the timing of her disappearance and proximity to the Red Kestrels became a matter we could not overlook. You're an intelligence veteran, Agent Siddig. You know how bad this looks for her, and for you. Julian hummed in agreement. Agent Yadov did have a point but she seemed to be more concerned with ruling him and Samantha out than ruling them in. A good sign. It seemed while they were technically working with Rennick, they did not appear to be on the same side. He must have already poisoned their perception of him. I do not deny the facts as you have recited them, Lieutenant Yadov. I will state up front that I do not know of Agent Mori's whereabouts, nor of her current intentions. I was as saddened and angered as anyone else when I received the alert that Starview Station had been infiltrated and attacked by the Red Kestrels, despite their silence thereafter. Julian turned his attention to Meridesi, the one who was really questioning him. But I assure you, Agent Mori was not involved. Yadov leaned to the side, trying to catch Julian's attention. Agent Siddig, how can you be certain of that? Julian nodded, returning his attention to Yadov. She was asking good questions, but she should know that an intelligence officer with Julian's experience would know how to navigate a tame, exploratory interview like this without giving up anything he did not intend. This meant she was either incompetent, which he doubted, or that the goal was not to extract verbal information, but instead to keep him talking while Lieutenant Meridesi observed for subtle, nonverbal communications. Julian's eyes shifted back to Meridesi. She was still watching him with the same intense interest. Time to throw some noise into the signal she was attempting to hone in on. Lieutenants, I cannot be certain of that. None of us can. And you both know why. I also cannot be certain that the two of you are not responsible for the intelligence lapse aboard the Terminus, the one you denied earlier, that you suspect facilitated both Kestrel attacks. Perhaps you are here to create a diversion by focusing on me. You each would certainly have access to the Terminus at clearance levels far exceeding any planet-bound 5e agent. Or perhaps it is the commander who wished to create the diversion. He was recently promoted, yes? Strange for a black ops assassin with virtually no commander leadership experience to be plucked for such a high-profile position. The type of clearance he must have now, Julian shrugged. All I can be certain of is that I am not who you want, and I extend that same certainty to Agent Mori. The level of premeditation needed to fit the profile of your infiltrator, well, it is just not her style. That would require someone far more duplicitous and, do not tell her I said this, charismatic.
Yadov snorted. She turned to Meridesi. The other lieutenant did not return her gaze, however, and instead continued to stare at Julian. He had managed to overwhelm her systems for a moment. The two OS-9 representatives were following the orders they were given, and Julian was happy to move the conversation where it needed to go. OS-9 needed to find the Terminus Compromise, not be dragged into Rennick's personal fixation. Finally, Meridesi turned to Yadov and shrugged. Yadov placed her hands on her legs and leaned forward. Julian, if I may. We are here to rule you out as being involved in any misconduct that led to the Dauntless hijacking and Starview attack. Outside of those things, we are not interested in you or Agent Mori, regardless of any other alleged crimes, which can be handled by your agency's internal affairs or Kestris legal authorities. Please, give us something that will let us resume our focus on things that matter. It was an interesting proposal. Revealing Director Clark's plan would definitely give OS-9 ample amounts of evidence to rule out both Samantha and Julian, but while they, Clark included, were working for the greater good of the Imperium, they were all still guilty of high treason. Julian could not come over to OS-9's side of the table, no. But if he could persuade them to come over to his... Julian smiled a genuine smile. I want nothing more than to help. I can understand the pressure on you. In fact, I feel the same way when my own organization, a non-military one, was unable to prevent the intelligence lapse that led to the disappearance of the Dauntless by the Red Kestrels, who we were chiefly responsible for monitoring at the time. Julian's expression softened. Yadov and Meridesi were not his enemies, but he needed to keep pushing them off balance, and it was time for an abrupt shove. I imagine you feel similarly regarding the Terminus Insider, who you suspect is providing key advantages to the Red Kestrels from within your ship, an unthinkable feat occurring on your watch. Yadov's face did not move. Julian looked to Lieutenant Meridesi. She was still watching him, but her expression had shifted away from scrutiny. Puzzlement was the closest to it, but not quite. This answered Julian's third, biggest question. They were aware of the intelligence compromise and collaboration with the Kestrels as the precursor to the Dauntless and Starview incidents. Yadov sat upright, exhaling slowly. Agent Siddig, if you have information you wish to share, we can have you safely transported to the Terminus to speak with Major Drake himself, as a guest, not sitting in a cell. Yadov's eyes narrowed and her voice lowered. We both know that the person we shouldn't trust is the one who brought you here and will be coming through that door as soon as our 30 minutes is up. If you want out of here, now is the time to cooperate. Yadov sounded sincere. Julian quickly sorted his options. Wait for Rennick to return, not his first choice, or go with Yadov and Meridesi and take his chances with Major Drake. The memory of Rennick's stun charge made him shudder involuntarily. Julian's mind may be well-trained, but his body still reacted like anyone else's. He sighed. It looked like he would be heading into orbit. Before Julian could speak, the door to the room slid open and two armed men rushed inside, taking up defensive postures near the door, followed by another figure in a state of rage. Agent Siddig, stand up. We're leaving, Clark ordered. The two OS-9 lieutenants turned just in time to see Clark's finger pointing aggressively in their direction. This is over. Clark stood in front of the two armed 5E agents with their short-barreled bolt rifles held tightly at their waists. Yadov glared at the guards, rising from her seat to face Clark. Excuse me, what is the meaning of this? 
We are here on orders from Major William Drake on a classified, top priority. I said this is over, Clark barked, eyes burning through the lieutenant. He took a step towards Yadov, who involuntarily took a half-step back. Yadov's eyes flitted to the guards Clark had brought. Like I said, we are here on Major Drake's orders to speak to Agent Sittig on an ongoing investigation, and... Clark sneered and walked past Yadov. Julian, are you okay? Can you walk out of here? Julian took a deep breath, wasting no time standing. I have been in better physical shape, but I would be delighted to walk out of here before my host comes back. Good, let's go, Clark said, glaring at Yadov. Julian had never seen him so expressive, even if the singular emotion was anger. Yadov seemed to have found a reserve of courage as she stepped in front of Julian. I am Lieutenant Esme Yadov, OS-9 Principal Fleet Security Specialist. I must insist you identify yourself. Need I remind you that you are on Navy property? We are working under orders from Fleet Marshal Gallo's office directly. This show of force is quite unnecessary and inappropriate. Clark's eyes narrowed at the lieutenant. You don't know Tao. I should have brought ten more guards with me, he growled. Julian took the opportunity to sidestep his way behind Clark, smiling politely as he sidled past. While there may be more to learn about OS-9's purpose here, he'd rather do that from a secured location. Lieutenant Meridesi finally rose from her chair and turned to face Clark, placing a hand on Yadav's arm. She did not seem rattled by Clark's intrusion. Lieutenant, there is no need for any antagonism here. This is Director Elias Clark, Agent Siddig and Mori's supervising officer. The director only wishes to release Agent Siddig from this unlawful detainment. Clark's head turned sharply towards Lieutenant Meridesi. Until now, she'd remained seated and facing away. When Clark saw her, a flash of recognition crossed his face, quickly stamped out, but not before Julian had the chance to catch it. Clark's eyes narrowed. Something had changed, but Julian didn't know what. I am Lieutenant Ken Meridesi, OS-9 Principal Fleet Security Analyst. As Lieutenant Yadov stated, we are here under the express orders of Major Drake to speak with Agent Siddig regarding an ongoing naval investigation. We were not aware of the illegal nature of this detainment until Agent Siddig informed us. Director Clark, you are familiar with the Major, yes? Clark hesitated a moment. Much of the anger had faded from his face, leaving only a stern, calculating stare. I am familiar with the Major, yes. Meridesi bowed her head. Excellent. The Major sent us here to rule out Agent Siddig of wrongdoing in our investigation. I am not authorized to release any further information, but I can assure you we had no part in his arrest and detainment and have no accusations or charges against him. He is released. Should you need more information, I would recommend you speak to the Major directly, Meridesi said, tipping her head. Clark let his eyes linger on Lieutenant Meridesi for a moment before turning to Julian. No more talking. This entire conversation is illegal, and I will see that everything said is stricken from all records. He turned to the two 5E commandos at the door. Stick to Agent Siddig. He is not to leave your sight until we've secured him outside of Navy jurisdictions. He turned back to the two lieutenants. The Major will be hearing from me. Julian started toward the door, but turned and took a step towards Yadav and Meridesi, leaning close and whispering, If you want to talk about the issue with your ship, let me know. I believe I can be of some assistance. Yadav maintained eye contact, but did not otherwise acknowledge his statement. Julian shrugged and followed the group out of the room. Standing by an elevator at the end of the hall was a single member of Rennick's staff, a young woman in one of the unmarked blue uniforms. Julian recognized her, 
It was former 5E agent Tess Millinson, a recent 5E recruit who had been lured away by the hefty promotion offered by Rennick's new division. Clark leaned toward Millinson as he passed, voice just soft enough for Julian to hear. He's not going to be happy with you. Take measures to protect yourself. Director, I was complying with all Imperium guidelines regarding our organization's collaboration. Commander Tau can lodge his complaints with the fleet marshal if he does not want his operatives to obey Navy rules and regulations, Millinson said, voice conspicuously stable. Clark gave Millinson a single nod. Julian gave her a look of gratitude. As they entered the elevator to freedom, Julian could see the silhouettes of the two OS-9 lieutenants exiting the cell. He stole a glance at Clark. The director's eyes were fixed on them. Rennick glanced down at his comm. He smirked. Clark had taken longer than expected. The old man must be overwhelmed with his agency's failure to make any meaningful progress after Starview Station. Hopefully, he had received the message. Rennick could still hurt him should he interfere. Clark cared about his agent's well-being, and that meant he'd expose himself in order to protect them. The better strategy would have been for Clark to leave Julian to the fate of the cell's white void. But now, Rennick had them both on the defensive, and OS-9 was another factor Clark would have to deal with. It was just the kind of diversion Rennick needed for a few more days. The doors to the fleet marshal's private office on the terminus slid open, a pair of honor guards stepping through with Gallo himself only a few steps behind. After Rennick had exited Major Drake's Indigo staff meeting, it had taken him a few creatively embellished tales of urgency to learn Gallo's schedule from his aides. When he finally did, he was told the time it took the fleet marshal to walk from his offices to his private elevator that read directly to the Terminus's bridge was all the time he would have. Otherwise, the fleet marshal was book solid. Rennick could not risk Gallo refusing him an audience. His only choice was to ambush the fleet marshal and make it look like, due to Drake's staff meeting, Rennick was just in the neighborhood and was happy to sneak into the only gap of time available. Gallo did not slow his pace, causing Rennick to double time to keep up with the taller man. Make it fast, Commander. Yes, sir. I have an actionable lead regarding the Dauntless. I believe I can retrieve the information we need as well as cauterize an open end on Sonali. Rennick eyed the honor guard. He presumed that anything he could say to Gallo he could say in front of them, though he strongly wished for a private audience. Gallo cast a sidelong glance at Rennick, the corner of his mouth curling. Sonali? The Fringe? Commander, you have required on Kestras. Any threat the Red Kestrels pose will soon be made irrelevant. Your chance to produce the Dauntless has passed. Rennick suppressed his scoff of disgust. Instead, he nodded in acknowledgement buying himself a precious second to prepare his rebuttal. He had to get to Sonali. That was where Samantha must be going next. Eddie Renner had divulged enough that Rennick was all but certain that Kat Basara was Samantha's next target. He had to get there. Understood, but my ship can make it from Kestris to Sonali and back before... Gallo stopped, his honor guard taking another few steps before noticing and shuffling back. Gallo scowled at Rennick. Do you forget your place? You carry out the tasks you are given, nothing more. Gallo broke eye contact and continued his march forward. You are dismissed. A flush of rage burned on Rennick's cheeks. He remained standing in the corridor, knowing there was nothing left he could say to change Gallo's mind. Why the Dauntless was suddenly no longer of interest to Gallo, Rennick had no idea. But that meant Rennick did not have the complete picture, and that Gallo was no longer keeping him informed of the ultimate plan. This was dangerous. 
the elevator doors opened at the end of the corridor, and the honor guard entered, followed by Gallo. The fleet marshal turned, his eyes locked with Rennick's until the door slid closed. Rennick looked to his comm. He tapped one of the buttons on the curved glass display, sending a pre-configured request to the captain of his ship to prepare for interstellar travel. It was the ship Gallo had granted him unrestricted use of to carry out the tasks that were never to be spoken of, a ship that was unable to be monitored or tracked, not even by Gallo. The doors to Clark's office in 5E headquarters slid shut. The same pair of armed 5E guards having escorted them the entire way remained outside. Julian eased himself down into one of the chairs facing Clark's desk, grateful for the comparatively ample padding to the cell's built-in bench. That was a terribly unpleasant experience, Julian said, feeling the tension of the past day and a half ease, replaced by the inevitable come-down shock. Clark circled around behind the desk, leaning against the wall and folding his arms. It was my fault for taunting him. Rennick wanted to hurt me, and he used you to do it. He probably never intended to question you, Clark huffed, eyes narrowing. I hope Drake realizes who he's dealing with. Julian sighed, contemplating the statement. Indeed, sir. I did get the impression that this detour was not a part of OS9's plan. They appeared to be more concerned with due diligence. Rennick must have presented quite the story for OS9 to take the allegations as seriously as they did. Clark grimaced, flipping which arm was folded atop the other. I know, Major Drake. I can try reaching out to him as a professional courtesy. I have a hard time believing, though, that Rennick makes many friends anywhere he goes. I do not think Drake and his subordinates are blind to the situation. They seemed aware of the possibility that a Navy asset aboard the Terminus has been compromised, though they were genuinely surprised when I seemed to know something about that as well, Julian said as he absentmindedly rubbed the spot on his chest where the stun baton had hit him. Clark's mouth pressed into a thin line, eyes focused on something only he could see. Agent Siddig, there is something else. Now... I don't want to drag you right back into work after having been assaulted like you were, but I need to ask you about the last task I gave you, Clark said. Julian blanked for a moment, completely unsure of what the director was referring to. He walked his memory backward, through the interview, into his imagined library, into the white void, into his office across the Capitol compound. Ah, yes, the sleeper activation protocol. It was accomplished, and not a moment too soon. I do not believe the one-time pad had even cleared the vaporizer before I was so rudely interrupted. Clark stepped away from the wall and paced across the office, looking out the armored steel glass window that overlooked the plaza below. Good work. I think we may have an interesting advantage on our hands. Julian tilted his head. This is about the sleeper. Clark clasped his hands behind his back, looking over his shoulder to Julian. Yes. It's not something I could have planned but the sleeper was in the room with you. Julian closed his eyes and thought for a moment. Oh, yes, I see it. Lieutenant Meridesi, of course. Her detached scrutiny makes sense. She was having to protect both sides of the situation. He nodded in approval, reaching up to grab the pencil behind his ear, only to find it wasn't there and awkwardly letting his hand fall back to his lap. Clark narrowed his eyes. And your summation of the situation is what exactly? Julian raised his eyebrows, inhaling deeply. Well, Agent Ken Meridesi is an intelligence compromise herself, officially investigating the source of the Terminus compromise that is collaborating with the Red Kestrels, and Rennick, 
whose inexplicable promotion and proximity to the Terminus, Fleet Marshal, and untold levels of elevated security access, is trying to turn OS-9 onto the trail of our rogue agent Samantha, drawing attention away from himself and hurting us by setting her up as the Terminus's compromise, all while she is out there trying to pick up a trail which, I will not hesitate to say, likely leads back to Rennick himself, as he continues to be the only person who can link all these occurrences together. Julian smiled. I hope you are keeping track of this. Clark grunted, turning back to the window. I am guessing Agent Meridesi was as surprised to see me barge through that door as I was to see her. But she kept her cover. If we use her proximity carefully, we may be able to get out in front of this for the first time and use Rennick's attempts to pollute the investigation to our advantage. Julian raised a finger. Sir, if I can state the obvious. It's your gift. Julian bowed his head. Thank you, sir. If Rennick is trying to pollute, as you put it, the OS-9 investigation by provoking them into following false leads, it is plausible he is trying to deflect his own actions onto someone similar enough to fit the story. Most of what he is saying about Samantha could be said about himself. The access, the history, the flouting of rules and allegiances. Julian raised his eyebrows. Clark nodded, finishing the sentiment. If we're fitting people to a profile... Rennick is likely a part of the Terminus Compromise and one of the insiders working with the Kestrels. He's taken his own story and is trying to flip it onto Samantha, and us sending her rogue into the sector set her up to almost fit exactly what he needed. Julian stood, joining Clark at the window. Yes, an unfortunate series of coincidences. Clark shook his head. And coincidences won't help us. We've got no evidence on Rennick and can't risk taking a shot at him and missing. I do not doubt for a moment that Rennick is compromised in more ways than one, but there's nothing solid that actually links him to anything. And if there were, he's still only an errand runner. Who's giving him the orders? Gallo? Clark brought a hand up to his face, rubbing his eyes. Julian could see the director's forehead tighten. Clark brought his hand down in a swift motion, words drenched in anger. If Gallo is orchestrating all this, he's not just pulling the strings of this puppet show. He owns the whole damn theater. The scope of what we're up against is only growing. Any weak point we could attack vanishing before we have a chance to exploit it. Julian shrugged. Perhaps. But Rennick has exposed his intentions and invited outside scrutiny into the fleet marshal's realm. That, without his personal fixation, would not have occurred. If Rennick is unwilling to recognize that this obsession jeopardizes whatever he is being asked to do, Samantha can be a lure, forcing him to act against the integrity of the, as you put it, Puppet Master's wishes. Clark exhaled, forehead wrinkled in a rare state of surprise. You're not suggesting we use Samantha to draw Rennick out into the open. Julian held up a forestalling hand. No, but if Rennick is fixated on her, Samantha will still be a target. We know Rennick has put OS-9 on her trail, and it is clear the lengths he is willing to go in order to pursue her. If we can warn Samantha... She can evade both Rennick and OS-9 more effectively. If not, well, we have essentially sent her into a sector where every encounter she has is now a potential ambush, and right now, she does not know it. Clark grimaced, turning and pacing back across the office. He turned, one arm folded, the other pointing a finger back at Julian. If we contact her, that's proof positive of our involvement with her after the Section 42. We're implicated and there's no coming back from that once Rennick uses it against us. If caught, 
We're given life sentences, or executed, and hung up as the perpetrators of the Red Kestrel collusion, releasing Rennick, Gallo, and whoever else from any suspicion. Julian thought for a moment, cataloging every potential avenue. He had done a good job when he had cut Samantha off from the Imperium. Almost too good. He recounted everything they had done and spoken about since the return from Sonali. The computer he had given her was of no use. It truly was inaccessible. But that was not all he gave her. Not yet, at least. Julian paced across the room toward Clark. Sir, there may be a way to avoid contacting her, but still get her a message. Elaborate, Clark said, raising an eyebrow. Julian paced back to the window. In keeping with the trend of layering deception on top of deception, there is a little, call it a detail, that I have left out in our conversations around this mission. May I, sir, decompartmentalize something I think can help? Clark's eyes narrowed. Sittig. Julian took that as an affirmative. Sir, I could not send her out completely without assistance. So, while I was preparing the mission assets we provided before her departure, I also arranged to have a collection of operations equipment, a tax suit, visor, her preferred 5E weapons and tech, deposited on Sonali in a civilian shipping facility. Delivery was confirmed. It is there waiting for her to retrieve it. Damn it, Julian, Clark exclaimed planting his fists on his hips. So you did know where she would end up. Imagine if Rennick had gotten that out of you. Yes, Director. It was a calculated risk. I believe the chances for the overall success of this mission would be increased enough to counterbalance the risks, including disobeying your orders. Julian raised a finger. I will point out that, in this case, chance tipped in our favor. A battlefield decision, if you will. Clark glowered. Have you ever been in a battle, Agent Siddig? I don't mean a few stray bolts or a botched mission. I'm talking ground infantry, capital ships, watching what happens when someone makes a bad call and dozens, hundreds, thousands die because of it. Julian cleared his throat, finding a blank patch of floor to stare at. Well, no, sir. I mostly sit in a chair and say things into an earpiece while hacking into computer systems, Julian said. He was not about to compare being a controller to actually fighting, not to Clark. The director glared at Julian. What's your idea on how to leverage this ill-advised insurance plan you left for her? Julian nodded, eager to get past his blatant insubordination. We have no way to contact Samantha directly. The computer I sent with her is truly blind. But I believe I can connect with the tax suit's communication array. I can send it information that she will receive the first time she activates it. Or if she already has, the next time she connects the suit's onboard computer to any public system network. You're betting on her actually going to Sonali, retrieving the suit, and doing any of this before potentially being ambushed? That's a brittle assumption, Clark said. It is the best we have. When she left Kestris, reaching Sonali and locating Kat Basara was her first mission objective. With the escalation of the Starview Station attack, I believe that Samantha would now feel only more certain that Basara will have the answers she and the rest of us need. Clark paced again, exchanging office sides with Julian. I don't like us knowing this. Compartmentalization is now broken. We both know where she's headed. Julian shrugged, again reaching for the non-existent pencil and again dropping his hand. Sir, the situation and mission have changed in the last week since she left. We need to do what makes sense, and leaving her open to Rennick or OS9 is irresponsible of us. Julian straightened his back, meeting Clark's eyes squarely. Pardon the critique of our tactics, sir 
but it is time to adapt the plan. Clark gave a single, wry laugh. Battlefield decision, he muttered. You know, Julian, there's a saying that goes back to what is probably the beginning of war itself. All plans fail. Some plans have merit. Clark stalked back to the window, staring across to the Capitol building in the distance. Set it up, but not from here or your office, any of them. Find someplace new and don't tell me or anyone else. If it weren't for the optics of it, I'd send you out to the sector at this point as well. Julian bowed. Yes, sir. I only need to stop by my office and grab my pencil and one of my backup computers. I do not believe Rennick will be returning my property. Julian turned and walked to the door, then stopped. Actually, Director, I had a lot of time to think recently, and I believe there is something else we could provide her that is a little more versatile. But it will require your active participation in falsifying requests, records, and tampering with quite a trail of digital touchpoints to pull off. You would be, respectfully, entering into a series of compromising circumstances that you may not have been previously comfortable entering. Clark tutted softly. You know, Siddig, all this time, I thought you were the straight one and she was the wild card. I'm starting to think that Samantha's willingness to play the rebel was a part of an elaborate ruse to hide your disregard for rules and procedures. Julian smiled and bowed. On the contrary, Director, I have a healthy respect for rules and procedures, and I am quite comfortable following the ones I agree with. Right. Clark shook his head, sighing. Okay, how do we want to do this? Hey everybody, Eric here. Thanks for listening to episode 32, bringing back Julian after his uh, his arrest back in season one when Rennick stormed in and, you know, we're finally bringing together, um, you know, that side of the story with Julian and Clark, you know, with uh, Kin and the Terminus and Yadav and, you know, tying together um, Julian who needs to pursue Rennick and kind of deflect him away from Samantha and their operation and Ken who has the same orders from Major Drake. Well now, you know, they're gonna be able to find some common ground to kind of establish the B-team uh, storyline here in season two to combat things while Samantha goes after it, you know, from the outside pursuing the Red Kestrels um, on Sonali. One of the things about how the Dauntless Gambit is written is obviously it's in point of view chapters where the narrator in each chapter is third person, but it's told only through the lens of the character whose point of view uh, that the chapter is focused on. So for this chapter, it's Julian, and we get to see Julian interact with Kin without getting to hear her thoughts, without getting to hear her mental reads, or even know if she knows that Julian is one of Clark's. Where, of course, Julian, as you know, uh, in the beginning, he doesn't know that Kin is the sleeper agent and, and doesn't find that out later until Clark tells him. So it's, it's fun to bring characters together who normally you've only seen inside their own heads and then you flip it and show them from the outside from another character. And that's what this does is let us see Ken for the first time from someone else's point of view, which just happens to be Julian, who, you know, was her sleeper activation, you know, person and Clark, he's the person who's given her orders. So, uh, 
Stick around, you know, uh, we're coming back with episode 33 soon, getting those narrated. It's gonna be a lot of fun getting back with the Matilda crew. Love the crew scenes, they're so, they're so funny. Um, you've heard me do this now 32 times, so you know where all my stuff is. Go to ericflowers.com, go to Amazon, email me. If you're listening, tweet at me. And otherwise, just keep enjoying the ride. You know, the Dauntless Gambit. We're gonna see this through to episode 60. And I will catch you next Monday for episode 33.